Tonight, again, we are looking at the life of Moses. Uh, I was. Th- this is the point in the semester where I realized how much of the life of Moses we're not going to be able to cover. I don't know what I was thinking because, you know, there are five books that his life and um, things that he wrote uh, are spread out over. And um, tonight, you know, we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. And it's sort of a hodgepodge of things that you need to know about the Ten Commandments to understand how they fit into the rest of the story, not only of Moses' life, but of the life of God's people and of your life. So we're going to read again the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 1, and then we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And don't worry, I'll do a little review at the beginning. So if you have a Bible or you have the, the sheet with the text printed on it, please follow along as I read. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your manservant or maidservant nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would help us to cover the rest of what we need to cover tonight. Help us to understand more about your law, that we would come to love your law and love you, the lawgiver. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of things that when I even read the text, I'm like, if you weren't here last week, you're wondering, what does that mean? Test you. And what does that mean? Um, You know, just lots of things I could talk about. What does it mean, you know, that he hates to the third and fourth generation, those who disobey the commandments. I talked about all that stuff last week. I may not have convinced you or satisfied you, but I did talk about it. I'm not going to talk about those two things tonight at all. I will refer you to my podcast. Go to the iTunes store, search under Belmont RUF. I put that one up there today. I put up a recording of it, 
And I also put up the outlines that I always hand out. I put that as a PDF. You can podcast PDFs as well. Um, so if you want to look those things up, go for it. Great. Hope you will. Um, the, the, what I do want to tell you about what I covered last week that's important and worth reiterating is the context of the Ten Commandments, even though a lot of Christians, I, I mentioned my neighbor who I don't know, but down the street from me has a placard in their yard with the Ten Commandments, um, pretty typical. They leave out, as Christians generally do, the preface to the Ten Commandments. Verse 1, verse 2, the idea that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's very important to understand. The context of the Ten Commandments is a particular story by a particular God who has pledged himself to his people. He said, I am your God. I've married myself to you, and I have redeemed you. I've brought you out of slavery. So the Ten Commandments are not given to put God's people back into slavery. And they're not given so that the people can gain a relationship with God. They already have a relationship with God. He's their God, and he's redeemed them. So that's very important that you understand. So then why does he give the law? Why does he give the Ten Commandments? If it's not to gain a relationship with him, and it's not um, so that he can put them into bondage and ruin all their fun, why does God give the law? We're going to talk about that tonight. Next, we're going to talk about what's in the law. We talk about the law, but the law actually is much bigger than just the Ten Commandments. Major sections of the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are what you could call law. I can't cover all of that, but I will make some some suggestions to you about the three parts of the law, what theologians call the three parts of the law, why that's important to understand those three parts. Um, And then we're going to talk a little bit about how Jesus fits into all this. And what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law? What does, that, what does that mean? Does that mean that we don't have to worry about any of this anymore? We just need to read the New Testament? Um, and then a couple points on how to interpret the Ten Commandments. And then um, I'm not sure if I'll actually get to say too much about how to think about each of the commandments. That's why I gave you the addendum. We'll see how fast I can get through this if I can get to that. But I will for sure talk about the first commandment and why it's first and why that's so important for understanding the rest of the commandments and what a relationship with God looks like. All right, ready? Hang it on. Hang on, because here we go. Why does God give the law? Um, In asking that question, what I'm basically asking is, what are the uses of the law? Because as you survey the Bible, and as theologians have thought about this over uh, centuries, really, they have decided and come to a consensus, which I'm going to talk to you about tonight, which is what we call the uses of the law. There are three uses of the law in the Reformed tradition. There are some traditions, like the Lutheran tradition, where they would argue that they only believe in two uses of the law, but actually... In some ways, Martin Luther even used the law in the third use way. I don't want to get into that. That's a debate for Lutherans and Reformed scholars and church historians. But the three uses of the law are biblical. And in the Reformed tradition, which RUF is part of that stream of the family of God, has developed this idea a lot. What are these three uses? It's important to understand that the law of God, God gives it to us for our good and for his glory, but there are different uses and purposes 
that it actually serves to function. Three of them that we'll talk about. Here they are. The first is, and this is the one you probably uh, have heard if you've been a Christian for very long at all or if you've been around Christians. Uh, The first is the law was given to drive us to Christ, to drive us to cry out to God for mercy. The, the, The law was never meant to teach us how to gain a relationship with God. And yet, what the law does do is it says, here's what's required to be in relationship with God. This is the kind of person you need to be if you would live in relationship to a holy God. This is what he made you to be like. He made you to be somebody who doesn't lie, who doesn't lust, who doesn't covet, who honors your mother and your father in all rightful authority who never misuses his name or misrepresents him in any way. That's what he made you to be. How are you doing with that? All right. The first use of the law is to say, you can't do this. What are you, nuts? This is what you're supposed to do, but you can't do this. The first use of the law is to bring you to your senses, to bring you to reality, to realize that you're in desperate need of a rescue. You need grace because you can't do what's required. Now, a lot of people try to evade this use of the law and this truth. They do it in various ways. Some of them would try to say, well, you know, I, I, I think that um, what really matters, what really matters is that I just maintain the letter of the law. And you know, gosh, I've never killed anybody. So, you know, I'm probably doing okay. I mean, I, I, I'm better than that guy, you know. They, they just look at the external. They try to avoid, evade the reality of this, the, 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 the deep calling that this is to a particular way of living um, by saying, well, this just deals with the externals, and I can keep those. I can keep the letter of the law. I can do this, right? Do you remember the, um, the rich young ruler that came to Jesus one time and said, what do I have to do to inherit heaven? And Jesus said, do all the commands. He says, done it got it, right? And then Jesus helps him to understand that there's a whole lot more depth to what God requires than just sort of external obedience. And the reason you know that is the very last of these commandments, the very last one, you shall not covet. See, I remember I said this last week, we don't have any laws in America about coveting. As a matter of fact, so much of our culture and our uh, economy depends upon people coveting and wanting things and being talked into buying things they don't really need, right? Envy fuels so much of uh, our life in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but, the, but God says, look, I claim rights over your hopes and your dreams and your desires because I'm a jealous God and I made you for myself. And, and it's not enough for you just to be able to tick off the Ten Commandments and say, I've done this, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't stolen from anybody. You know, well, maybe you've stolen God's honor, but, you know, don't, don't worry about that. Don't think about that too hard so that you can remain positive about your state. Um, but when you get to do not covet, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Do not covet. Oh, this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. He realized when he got to do not covet that maybe there's an internal aspect to all the Ten Commandments. And he went back and started thinking about all of them and realized, yeah, I've got no hope. I've got no hope. If God requires this, and he requires this from the heart, right? Wow. So that's the first use of the law. 
It's one of the main points of the law to show you that you can't do this. And again, we try to evade it by saying that this only counts for externals, or we try to evade it by saying, well, all that really matters is that I get this a little bit better than the next guy. But that's not what it says. Nowhere does God say, as long as you do this pretty well, then great, I'm, I'm going to be satisfied. No. He says, be perfect. This Jesus said, uh, be perfect, God says, for I am perfect. Okay? So that's the first use of the law, to drive us to despair. This is why Martin Luther one time said that uh, a true theologian, somebody who really understands God and his ways, is not made so much by studying books, but by living and dying and being damned. What he meant by that was until the first use of the law has happened to you, until you've seen that you have no hope but to flee to Christ, you don't understand very much about God. So that's the first use of the law. The second is the law is to be a fence to keep you from being as bad as you want to be. The, the law is a, is a restraining fence that says God doesn't want you to live this way. And, you know, it, I'm not saying that this produces um, obedience from the heart, but the, the fact that the Ten Commandments and then the fact that it gets reflected in so many law codes and even our own laws keeps people restrained from being as bad as they want to be. It at least gives them pause to think about, well, God, God said something about murdering people. Ooh, I guess that's not such a great thing to do. Right? It's, it's, it's what sometimes we call the civil use. But the law has a role to play in keeping a society and individual people from being as bad as they want to be. Um, the, the third use, and this in some ways is the use that Luther said he didn't believe in, but he actually really did, um, is this, the third use is the idea that the law exists to help us understand how God wants to be loved. Now, this is an important thing to understand. The law cannot produce love. The law cannot produce love in your heart. But when Christ and what he's done, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, touches your soul, and you realize that everything you have is because of his grace, and it's not because you earned it and deserved it, what, what happens is that it sort of sets off this explosion in your life, in your heart, where you say, I want to live my life not for myself, but for the one who gave himself for me. And, and when you begin to experience that, um, I think like any good relationship, if you're in love, you want to know what your lover longs for, right? This idea that if, if you can just figure out what God, what would really please him, what would really just thrill him, don't you want to know? And that's where the third use of the law comes in. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. One of the great things that he's given us in his grace is the law to say, look, I'm not going to leave it up to you to try to figure out what I like. Here's what I like. I love it when you don't lie. I love it when you use sex in an appropriate way. I love it when you honor the authority that I've set up. If you love me, if you've been touched by what I've done for you, here's how I want you to live, right? So that's the third use of the law. The law has a lot to teach us 
about how God wants to be loved. He doesn't just leave us wandering around in the dark, groping in the dark. If you've ever you know, dated somebody, one of the real challenges is trying to figure out what do they like, <laughs> right? It, it doesn't go away in marriage, but hopefully you've figured out enough of it that you can at least get to that stage. But you know, God doesn't, God's not dating us. He's sort of laid it out there and says, here's, here's what I want. Here's how, here's how I love to be loved, right? So that's, that's the, the uses of the law. Why does God give the law? Um, what's in the law then? If you started to look at, okay, here, here's what the law's for. Well, what's in it? And um, th- there's three parts to the law, three uses and three parts. And here's the three parts. There's the moral law, there is the ceremonial law, and there's the civil law. And I need to explain this. I know this is a little more teaching than preaching tonight, but these are important things for you to understand. The moral law refers to basically the law that tells us how God wants his image bearers to live. It's basically the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are a tenfold summary of the moral law. Here's basically how I want you to live. And this portion of the law, the moral law, is still binding. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Did not abolish the law. He did not come and say, since I've come into the world, it no longer matters how you use sex. It no longer matters what you dream for and long for. It no longer matters whether you kill people or hate people, right? Jesus did not come to abolish the moral law. And he didn't come to replace it and say, well, just just love people and it'll all work out, right? No, he said, I came to establish this law to fulfill it. I didn't come to abolish this. The moral law, what God made us for, is what I have set you free to do and to be. The moral law that could never actually be realized in any of us, Jesus came not only to live it in a way we never could, but then to enable us to be who God had always intended us to be. God did not change his plan when sin entered the world and say, well, gosh, I guess I'll never have a people that will honor me and glorify me and live as my image bearers as I intended. He didn't throw up his hands and say, nuts to that plan, I'll have to think of something better. What he instead said is, I will send my son whose meat and drink will be to do my will. And then he will live and die in the place of these people that have broken my law. And yet when, when, when that sacrifice, what he's done, touches their heart, it will change the way they live. They'll no longer live for themselves. They'll begin to live for me, and they'll long to know how they can live in the way I want them to live. In other words, I will write my heart, law on their hearts and move them to obey my commands. I'll send my spirit, pour out my spirit upon them to do this. And one day, I will set them free from sin, even the presence of sin, completely when I bring the new heavens and the new earth. And for all eternity, I'll have a people that live like this. It's actually interesting to think about the Ten Commandments as prophecy about what you're destined for. Right? So this is is the, the moral law. Uh, the second part of the law is the ceremonial law. Now, as far as like raw verses, counting up verses, there's a whole lot of ceremonial law, tons and tons of it. If you read the rest of the book of Exodus, so much of what's in the rest of the book of Exodus is this ceremonial law. What's the ceremonial law? The ceremonial laws are all those dealing with sacrifices 
and ceremonial cleanness, the food laws, all the laws about what to do if this happens and you touch a dead body or this or that, anything that had to do with how you can stand in the presence of a holy God, anything about making you clean, was part of the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law also includes everything having to do with worship and all the regulations about worship and what you had to do and when you had to do it. It also involves all the the rules and the laws about how you're to set up the tabernacle, which the tabernacle actually was like this portable mountain. Did I mention that last week, right? That there's this point where um, the 70 can come and then Moses and Aaron go up farther with a couple other guys and then Moses goes up all the way up to the Holy of Holies, so to speak, and the tabernacle and then later the temple sort of you know, reproduced that same kind of three-tier deal with the different courts. Anyway, um, the tabernacle was this portable mountain. It was a way of God saying, you don't just have to come to this mountain to be with me. I'm going to go with you as you wander through the wilderness. I'm going to be available to you all the time. And eventually he will settle, you know, in the city of Jerusalem, in the temple there, right? But now Jesus tells us that the body of Christ is his church, is his temple. So anyway, really cool imagery with all that stuff. But, but all that kind of law, all that stuff that's pointing to us as his temple, all of that's part of the ceremonial law. Now the ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ, and it's no longer binding upon us. This is why, now this was a hard thing for a lot of Jews in the early church era to understand. But this is why Jesus said that he had made all foods clean. This is why Jesus did a lot of things that upset people. Uh, this is why the, the early Christians did this. There's big controversies about circumcision. But all of these laws were done away with because what they were pointing to had happened. What they were pointing to, they were signposts pointing to the coming of Jesus who would clean us in a way where we wouldn't need any cleaning again. We wouldn't need any other rituals to clean us in God's sight because the blood of Christ would wash us white as snow. And so when when Christ came, not only was it inappropriate for those ceremonial clean laws to still be practiced, it was actually offensive to the work and the sufficiency of the work of Christ and what he'd done. And so the clean laws, these ceremonial laws, have been fulfilled, and they're no longer binding on Christians. Now, there are some Christian groups that still think that, like the Seventh-day Adventists and you know, a few other groups that still want to practice the dietary laws. And you know, I, I saw some silly book about sort of what would Jesus eat that was trying to still encourage people to eat the dietary laws of the Old Testament, but no. That ceremonial law is, has been fulfilled. Um, the third part of the law is the civil law. The civil law. Now, the civil law is, is, is interesting. The civil law is the moral law applied to a particular context. And the particular context is Israel as a nation under God. Okay. So the civil law is what we call the case law. Like it says, do not murder. Okay, which better translated, do not unlawfully kill. Definitely does not say do not kill. There are a lot of Hebrew words that could have been used if it meant just any killing. Um, do not unlawfully kill. But then there are places where that's spelled out further. Like if you have a bull or an ox that's in the habit of goring people and you don't keep him locked up and he gores somebody, here's what you do. And here's the specific penalties that Israel as a nation is to impose upon the offender. 
That's, see, that, that's the civil law. We don't, we, we don't, as Christians, have to ha- have laws about what people do with their oxen. Now, th- that, that law, as it's applied, that civil law is the moral law applied in Israel as a nation's context, gives us some insight into what is involved in the moral law. That God cares not just about murdering people, but he also cares that you keep people safe and that you take precautions to, to care for them. Right? There's, there's lots of things you can learn about the moral law from the civil law. But we don't in the church still want to have children stoned for talking back to their parents. We still recognize that it's an inappropriate thing to not honor your mother and father. But that's the moral law. The civil law, the specific penalties for specifically doing this, and it has to do with Israel as a nation under God. The key to understand is that God does not relate to any nation on this earth in this way anymore. God has no longer limited his purposes to one particular political state. And I don't know what you think about the future of Israel or the fact of Israel being a state, but as I read the Bible, I don't read that as having significance at all in God's uh, plan of redemption, the fact that Israel is a nation. Um, now, this is a big difference between Christianity, for instance, and Islam, right? And it's a big difference between some kinds of Christianity throughout the centuries. You know, there were times when the Catholic Church was and still is. Vatican City is still a state. So it gets kind of confusing in some Christian traditions. But um, the civil law is this aspect of the, of, the, of the case law, the moral law applied to particular situations. And what's binding is the moral law behind it, not the particular penalties and the particular case law, how that's exactly worked out, right? Does that make sense? So there's three uses, three parts. Got that. Okay, so where does Jesus fit into all this? Where is Jesus? Because I've went a long time without talking about Jesus. Here's the point. Jesus is the true mediator, Moses is a mediator. What do I mean? What's a mediator? A mediator is a go-between. Remember, the people say, God, we, 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 you know, we don't want you talking to us anymore. You talk to Moses, and then let Moses talk to us. And we'll talk to Moses, and he can go talk to you. That's the mediator. And yet, Jesus is the one who is the true mediator between God and people. Moses, of course, in some ways is foreshadowing Jesus as he goes up on the mountain to speak with God. And you remember, while he's up there, and I wish if we had two semesters to do the life of Moses, we definitely would cover this in more detail. But in Exodus 32, do you remember what happens while Moses is up there getting all of these laws from God? The people say, you know, that Moses, he isn't back yet. Um, It's really unbelievable when you read Exodus 32 how quickly they decide that, um, that Moses is gone and they need to basically take matters in their own hands. So Aaron, the high, the high priest, future high priest, Aaron, Moses' brother, who was the spokesman who spoke to Pharaoh, saw all the miracles, saw firsthand everything that God had done, basically says, give me all your gold jewelry, fashions this golden calf, and they bow down to it and they offer sacrifices to it and they say to this golden calf, you are the one who brought us out of Egypt. It's really unbelievable, except, you know, sin is insane. Lest we sort of get on our high and mighty horse and we say, how could these people be so crazy? You're just as crazy. You just maybe are better at hiding it, right? You're more, maybe more subtle. Maybe you cover it better. But we're just as crazy. When you think that, you know, that you can basically earn God's smile by what you do or by what you don't do, when you think that you can be fully satisfied by getting good grades, 
or getting a record deal or getting people to like you or making a lot of money uh, or getting so-and-so to date you, whatever. All of those things are just as insane as bowing down to a golden calf and saying, you're the God who delivered me out of Egypt, right? Idolatry is always insane. But that's what they do. And so, of course, do you remember what Moses does when he hears about this? He doesn't go back down and discover it. Like, you know, what God basically says, hey, Moses, you might want to know that, like, while we're up here chatting about this stuff, those people down there, they've, like, made a golden calf, and they've offered sacrifices to it, and they've said to it, so you know, God took personal offense. They said to it, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And um, Moses first wants to, you know, well, the long and short of the story is Moses asked that he could be blotted out of the book of life in place of these people. And God says no. You know why God says no? Because he's already planned for one to be blotted out of the book of life for his people. It's Jesus. The reason God doesn't wipe them out then and there is because he has already planned one day to punish Jesus for their sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that God overlooked the sins done beforehand so that he could punish them upon Jesus so that he could be both just and the justifier of the wicked. God can never overlook sin, but he sends Jesus to be the mediator, to be blotted out of the book of life, to be obliterated so that his people would not have to be. So this is where Jesus fits into all this. Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve because we can't live like this. And Jesus also is the one who comes and lives like this. And the good news, the reason we, that, that Christians talk about the gospel literally means good news, that word. The reason it's good news is because Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners. It's this great old hymn by Horatius Bonar where he says, Upon a life I did not live Upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. That's what it means to be a Christian. Upon a life you didn't live, upon a death you didn't die, you stake your whole eternity. You trust God and you cry out and say, accept the life and death of Jesus in place of my life and death, right? And when you do that, it transforms the way and the reason you want to obey Christ. This is what we sang about, right? See, Christian obedience is not slavish obedience so that you can get God to like you. It's really the slave has been turned into a child because everything that you ever did that was holding you in bondage has been dealt with, right? The law, you see, is called in the Bible the law of perfect freedom. And that's an amazing thing. James in James 1.25 calls the law the law of perfect freedom. Why? First, because see, the law, the first thing the law does in that first use is it liberates you. It liberates you from the, the, the slavery of trying to get God to love you. And it liberates you by showing that that won't work at all. There's a kind of freedom that comes in despair. <laughs> just saying, why? I can't do this. So I need to just quit trying. There's a rest that comes when God kind of breaks through your self-conceit and your insanity and says, come and rest. You, you're not making any progress. You're really making it worse because all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags in my sight. You're offending me thinking that you could offer your rags of righteousness 
when I've sent Jesus to live and die in your place, and, and now you're, you're basically saying that that's not good enough? Here, take this instead, God. There's, there's a rest and a freedom that comes from having reality, waking up to reality, right? And then there's freedom from coming from him saying, look, I've lived for you, I've died for you. And, and then you say, well, gosh, what should I do? And he says, here's the law. The Puritans used to say it so well. They would say, Christ, the law drives us to Christ, and then Christ drives us to the law. Not the, to be justified, the law to know how to live, Right? So the law liberates us. So if the law is so wonderful, it drives us to Christ, and then it shows us how we're to live, why does Paul, the Apostle Paul, speak so negatively about the law sometimes? Because you know he really does sometimes. And, and here's, here's what, what happens. The word law in Paul's usage has a number of different meanings. And you have to be really careful to look at the context to figure out what he's talking about. But here's a very important principle. I'll just tell you this one little thing. Often in Paul, when he's critical of the law, what he means by law is the law of trying to obey the law as a principle to earn God's favor. By law, he means manner of living or way of trying to, to structure your life. And what he means particularly is you're trying, to, you're trying to basically rely on your law keeping to get God to love you. But in general, the law itself like the Ten Commandments, he says the law is holy and good. You know, when he talks about it negatively, he means it's bad if you're trusting in it for your relationship with God. All right, so a couple, couple points about the Ten Commandments and, then, um, and the First Commandment, and then I'm definitely out of time, and you're just going to have to look at the addendum on your own. But how should we interpret the, the commandments? The first one I've already mentioned a little bit. We have to interpret it spiritually. In other words, not just externally, and we need to understand that they have a fulfillment in Jesus. I don't have time to go through all that, but I will tell you, I did an extensive full-semester study a couple years ago on the Ten Commandments. And if you go to belmont.ruf.org, click on sermon series on the left and then click on 10 commandments you can get the outlines for every one of those messages and you can hear all of them recording quality is not great but you can you can hear them if you want to get into more detail about this um but that's that's the first principle the second principle is important the negative commandments you shall not do this or you shall not do that all of them include positive commandments and all of the positive ones, like you should do this, include negative ones. How do we know that? Well, we know that because of all the other laws that Jesus says hang upon, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We see it in the case law, the way that this is, is brought about, that it, it's not enough It's not enough for you to say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. You also are to care for the weak, and you're to take care of those who um, are in danger. You're sort of care for those who are hurt, all that kind of stuff, right? And you go, well, where in the Ten Commandments does it say we're supposed to care for anybody else? Where does it say that? Well, it says it in do not murder. Because do not murder, to really fully keep that, means that you should seek the physical well-being of God's image bearers. See, what the Ten Commandments often do is they state the most grievous breaking of the, of the sort of category of sins that are included there. So, for instance, uh, and this gets into the next principle, is this principle of synecdoche. Synecdoche, There's a movie about it now, so everybody knows this word now, synecdoche. used to be only English majors would know this word. Synecdoche means the part for the whole. In other words, when it says do not murder, that's including the most grievous example of a whole category of sins. This is why Jesus doesn't sort of make up something new when in the Sermon on the Mount he says, 
that murder also includes hating people. No, it always has included hating people. The problem with some of the Jews in Jesus' day is they had forgotten that or were trying to evade that truth, that reality. But it's always been that way. The, the commandment about murdering has always included you need to care for God's image bearers. And it's always included all of these other ways that you could show a lack of care or even harm other people. Okay? So the negatives include the positives. What you have stated is generally the most grievous example of a whole category of sins. Okay? That's important to understand. All right. So why the first commandment? Why is the first commandment the first commandment? This is the one that's the most important in this regard. If you break the first commandment and you forget who God is, it causes you to break all the other nine. Now, what I'm saying, the reason this is important to understand is the commandments are all given by a covenantal God who is our God. In other words, they're given in the context of relationship. But the most important thing God says right off the bat is you need to understand who I am. This is why in the preface he says, this is who I am, this is what I'm like, this is what I care about, this is what I've done. And then the first commandment comes right after that. Don't make an idol out of anything, even me. In other words, the reason you break any of the Ten Commandments is because you first break this first commandment. If you murder, if you hate somebody, it's generally because you've forgotten who God is. Either you feel like he's not taking care of you, he doesn't care about you, he doesn't have power, and therefore you need to hold a grudge against this person because God seems to have forgotten and let this person get away with murder while you're murdering them in your heart. And so, you know, the, the key to keeping the Ten Commandments is remembering who God is and what he's done. The first commandment is first for a reason. Because worship is central to who we are and to everything we do. Our problem is we worship a God who is less than the true God. And therefore, we feel justified in doing what we want to do. Because we say, well, God, God doesn't really care about me. Or God doesn't really have the power to take care of me. I better take matters into my own hands. It's always that way. And what we need to remember is who God is and what he's done. And that, again, connects us back to Jesus. Because what you're trying to get from, from, from this sort of disobedience, what you're trying to get from these idols, is, is, is in some ways a perverted, a perverted sort of image of what you were made for. But here's what you need to understand, guys. Jesus has already given you what you're trying to get from your idols. If you're trying to get love, if you're trying to get a future, you're trying to get somebody who cares for you, peace, whatever it is, Jesus has already earned it for you and given it to you. I wish I had more time to go into all this stuff. I give you this addendum, and I try to work out a little bit, very little, about these ideas about um, sort of the positive and the negatives and how much more there is into each of these commandments. Um, but let, I'll just direct you to that, and then let me pray for us.